never heard a Muslim song that moved me. <laughs> never heard a Buddhist song that made me want to stand up and shout. But boy, the church is full of them, isn't it? Songs that remind us of our hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. This life is not the end. It's the beginning of the life that God has for us. Tiffany, thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing with us today and for singing. And uh, I was sitting on the front row thinking, Sandy, what is that girl's last name? Sandy something. And it comes to me somewhere. Acts chapter 18. How do we claim a city for Christ? How do we claim a city for Christ? In Acts 18, Paul is leaving Athens, which is the intellectual capital of the world, the Roman Empire, and he moves toward Corinth, which is the sensual and material capital of the world. Now, when you see these two cities, Athens and Corinth, you see the two biggest obstacles to the gospel, intellectual pride and sensuality. The number one and the number two reasons why people will not turn to Christ is because they are too proud to do so or because they are trapped into a life of sensuality. Paul deals with both in these two chapters in the book of Acts. Corinth is about 50 miles from Athens. Paul takes a journey there. It's a town of about 200,000 people, and Paul is going alone. It is the place of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. It is also a city of commerce and materialism. And in that culture, the cross is offensive. But the cross is always offensive. People are troubled by the movie The Passion because it is offensive to people. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus is the dividing line. He's the fork in the road, and it's not a single road. You either go with him or you go against him. There's no middle ground. And the cross and the message of the cross came to Corinth. The gospel called people to a decision. And the citizens of Corinth, just to give you a little side note historically, the citizens of Corinth, anytime they were depicted in a drama or a play, would be depicted as drunkards or morally perverse. And God calls Paul to a city that is characterized by drunkenness and perversion and says, start a church. Get a work going there. Now, I'm a, I'm a little amazed, quite honestly, at the hubbub about Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake. Why should we, why was CBS shocked? They own MTV. They knew what they were doing. This was not, oh, we didn't know. This was blatant and we want to get away with it. Now, they can say whatever they want to say and spin it however they want to spin it, but if I was on the factor, I'd say, and that's the truth. That's the way it is. Every ad leading up to the halftime show was about men's sexual issues or alcohol. I'm as offended by the ads leading up to the show as I am by the halftime show. 
I mean, this is MTV, folks. This is, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. That's the kind of thing that they're going to do. This is not a surprise, okay? And did anybody think, did anybody in this room, just, just quickly, if you do, you need to testify. Did anybody in this room think when they announced Janet Jackson was going to be on the halftime show that she was going to do an impersonation of Mother Teresa? Any, I didn't think so. You see, America would feel at home in Corinth, and Corinth would feel at home in America today. That's the world in which we live. We live in a Corinthian culture where sex sells. Now, there's good news, because what is true about a Corinthian culture or a postmodern post-Judeo-Christian ethic culture, which is where we are today, is that when you've been in that kind of culture long enough, you begin to become jaded, but at the same time you become empty, and you realize life is meaningless and hopeless, and you begin to look for answers, and you begin to think there's something more in life than this, and God can do a great work in a culture and in an environment like that. And that's what God is going to do in Corinth. And, and one of the things that I see in here as I was beginning to work on this message is one of the tragedies of the American church is we have abandoned the cities. If you study the book of Acts, you will find that God always started a work in the cities. He went to the cities. Look, at there's a quote. I don't know if it's in your note. I think it is by A.B. Simpson, the cities of this world control its life. And so God would have us to preach the gospel working from the center to the circumference. God planted the gospel in cities. We have churches all across America that are trying to get out of the city. They want to move to the suburbs. When we built this facility, we knew that building this building here was a 50-year decision. We don't have any clue what this community or what this part of this town will be like in 50 years, but we made a conscious decision. We're not going out to get to where we can get in a certain neighborhood to reach a certain kind of people. We're going to stay where we are, and whatever happens around us, we're going to adjust to it. And we're going to reach people here in the city. If you look at traffic patterns in this city, you'll find that we're in the busiest part of this community. The light at Wendy's by the mall is the busiest intersection in this community. If you don't think Whispering Pines traffic is picked up, try to get out on it at 5 o'clock. I mean, it's picked up. Traffic is moving this way. The city is coming this way. Things are happening around here. And, and it bothers me when churches say, it's too hard to minister in the city when the gospel needs to be in the city to influence the rural community. Because what happens in the city controls the climate of all the cities around that city. And the towns and the suburbs and the neighborhoods around that city are influenced by what happens in a city. One of the great stories of American Christianity is the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Well, here's a church in the middle of Brooklyn, and when you walk outside that church, you wonder if you're going to live before you get a taxi. And yet people stand in line to go to church there. David Wilkerson's church, Times Square Church, you can't get into that church. It's in the middle of the city. Calvary Church in New York is in the middle of the city. 
It would be easier for all of them to say, let's go to New Jersey. Let's find a nice piece of land. Let's do something different. No, 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 no. They've stayed. And they have ministries that prosper. Why? Because they realize that those people in the city, if there's not a church, if there's not a light, if there's not salt, then that city is gone for Christ. So we have to be in the cities. We have to establish works in the cities. God started the works in the book of Acts in the cities. And so he sent Paul to Corinth. Now let's look at three things here. First of all, if you claim a city, it begins by establishing a presence in the marketplace. I, I found this very interesting. I've never really thought about this until I began to study this passage. But Acts 18.1, after these things, he left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, this was anti-Semitism. That verse is about anti-Semitism. Get the Jews out of Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade, they were tent makers. So this couple has moved out, and they've settled in Corinth. Paul comes into Corinth, and he needs a way to take care of himself and so he meets up with this couple. The text in the original language indicates that they were probably not believers. They were Jews, but they had not come to faith in Christ. And Paul begins to work with them, and he begins to move from a working relationship and a place where he has a job until they have a spiritual relationship. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans, they are his fellow workers in Christ, and he says that they have risked their lives for me. Now, just quickly, let me just say, if Christianity and business don't mix, you're in the wrong business. Our calling is to the world and to the marketplace. And we can't have a church in every business, but we can have a Christian in every business. And when people complain about, oh, I'm the only Christian at work, look at it this way. God must trust you a lot to put you in a position where you're the only witness. He must have a great plan for you if you're the only one. So don't try to leave, stay, and change the culture of the marketplace. Change what's going on around you. You know, we Southern Baptists have tried to boycott Disney, and that's failed. We still have it going, but that's a miserable failure. I, I don't see Mickey on the side of the road in Orlando going, you know, we'll dance for, for food. But I want to tell you, there are some people in some very significant places of leadership in Disney who are believers. And some of them have stopped Michael Eisner from doing some things that he wanted to do with the Disney theme parks, that they have stood their ground as believers and as witnesses. And our boycott, which was stupid to begin with, because if you're going to boycott them, you've got to boycott every business in America and every corporation in America. You can't just do one. So that means we're going to have to raise our own food, make our own clothes, because everybody's owned by somebody who caters to a carnal and secular society. All right? So I'm just going to clear the air. You can write me a note about it later. <laughs> but, you know, we are supposed to be salt and light. Derek Johnson, who is the one who is in charge of all the singing in the Christmas program, I mean, when you go to the Christmas program at Disney, there is gospel all over that program all over the program. If you go to Radio City Music Hall, they end that program at Radio City Music Hall with the story of Christ. It's, it's better than any Christmas pageant that any church has ever done that I've seen. 
I know they've got the rockets, but the gospel is going to, listen, people are influencing the culture and influencing what's going on, and they're in places and positions of leadership, but we put some Christians in high levels of influence in jeopardy by our actions which were mostly symbolic and not real. In fact, let me just give you a little point of reference here. The gentleman at the Southern Baptist Convention who made the stupid motion that we boycott Disney was interviewed after he made the motion. And this is what he said. I'm still going to keep my season tickets. He lives in Anaheim. I'm still going to keep my season tickets, but I'm not going to buy anything when I'm there. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Well, I've chased that rabbit. I shot him. I bagged him. He's home. <laughs> Verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, I, I, find, this, I find this humorous. Paul didn't say, man, I've been working. I put in an 85-hour week. This, I think I'm just going to rack out and not go to church this Sunday. He got up after working all week to try to pay his living, and then he goes every Sabbath and tries to persuade Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. Now, you can call it the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, but there should be a day when you devote to the worship of God. Not just an hour, but a day. And he says he's trying to persuade, which is an imperfect tense in the Greek, and it means he was persistently doing that. He was never stopping. He didn't give up. He didn't worry about the reactions of people. He just did what he was supposed to do. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11, and I want you to see what, what I believe that is an example of how Paul trained this couple, how he trained Timothy, and how he trained other people. This is his nine-course syllabus on how to equip people to have a marketplace ministry. So Paul is using this passage, if you will, to show how to equip people to have a ministry in the marketplace. And this is for you if you're in the marketplace, if you're trying to influence the marketplace, if you have a Bible study in the marketplace. This is how God can use you in one of these nine areas, or all of them maybe, to show people the difference that Christ makes. Look at it in verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. So I want you to look at the nine things that he mentions. First of all, you followed my teaching. All right? Paul taught them doctrine. Now, we get scared of doctrine today because we think doctrine is dry. Doctrine is not dry. You need to know doctrine because if you don't know doctrine, you will be deceived by somebody that sounds, says something that sounds right, but it's not right. It's almost truth. You need to understand the basic tenets of our faith. You need to understand doctrine. That's the first thing he says. You followed my teachings, and Paul taught them and systematized and taught theology to those who followed him. Secondly, his conduct. He said, the way I live. Nothing about the way I lived was different than the way I taught. My way of life. His purpose was number three. His purpose. Paul had two purposes in life, to know him and to make him known. That was Paul's purpose in life. Thirdly, fourthly, his faith. Paul lived a life of faith. He knew how to believe God for something. Number five, his patience. How he handled his trials, how he handled adversity, 
how he handled the irate customer that wanted the tent in another color. His love, how he loved people, even those that rejected him. His endurance. You see, one of the things about spiritual warfare is Satan wants to stop us and he doesn't want endurance to be a part of our lives. And in battle and in warfare, endurance is a key. Number eight, persecutions. Paul was persecuted almost everywhere he went. Uh, I can't imagine the persecution that Paul got. It's beyond my comprehension. Uh, the story is told of Marines in World War I who arrived on a battlefield in France and all the Allied forces were retreating. And so he was ordered to retreat. And the Marine commander said, retreat? We just got here. We need a little more Marine mentality in the way we approach the battles of life. We don't need to have retreat as our word. We need to be moving forward. The devil's trying to put us on our heels, and the Bible says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And we need to have that kind of mentality. So Paul taught them, even in how he handled persecutions and then sufferings, he reminded the church how much he had suffered. Now, secondly, claiming a city for Christ results in spiritual warfare, verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself. I love this turning of the sermon notes. I'm just gonna... Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul had reinforcements come in. Timothy and Silas came in, and so he began to focus more on his preaching, but the opposition began to increase, and his fellow Jews were rejecting the message. And so he turns to the Gentiles, much like he did in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. So he's doing the same thing now in Corinth that he had done in Antioch. Now, now listen, they had the Old Testament. They knew the promises of Messiah. It was not that they did not understand. It was that they refused to believe. The issue was not understanding. The issue was believing. They would not believe, and so Paul expresses his disgust for their response in a dramatic gesture. He shook out his garments. Now, the shaking out of a garment was a Jewish symbol of detachment. And what Paul was doing in that is Paul was, he shook out those garments. He said, I've had it. I'm through. I'm going to the Gentiles. You won't listen. You won't respond. I'm tired of doing this. I'm moving on. He was giving them a dramatic symbol, a picture that they would not get out of their minds that he was wiping his hands of his responsibility with them. He would no longer be responsible you see, the gospel is an invitation and a warning. It is an invitation that whosoever will may come. It's also a warning that when you reject, there are consequences to rejecting. The gospel is not judged by man. The gospel judges man. It is on the basis of what we do with the gospel that determines where we spend eternity. And so Paul shakes his garment he says in Thessalonians that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus 
and their own prophets and persecuted him. Now, I, I'm going to wade in some deep water here, okay? Mel and I are about to be real tight. I'm tired of a culture where people don't take responsibility for their actions. They blame their mama, they blame their daddy, they blame their education, they blame their environment. They ne that, Well, yeah, but you, you just don't know what I... I don't care. If you're an adult, you're responsible for your actions. Now listen. The movie The Passion is not anti-Semitic. It's not, okay? Our Savior is a Jew. It's not anti-Semitic. But it is historically accurate and holds to biblical integrity to use Matthew 27 25 which says his blood be on our hands and on our children we didn't write that Mel didn't write that they said it and it was recorded for all eternity now does that mean that every Jew said that absolutely not it meant that the dead religious Pharisees dead in their religion, unwilling to see the word that they had memorized in their head, unwilling to believe the prophecies that they knew, even knowing where Messiah would be born and that prophecy being fulfilled, that those religious leaders said, we don't care, he's not the one. And so we will be accountable and responsible. Did their sins put him on the cross? Yes. Did my sins put him on the cross? Yes. But they were the physical instruments that carried out the sentence. Okay? Now understand this, folks. It's not politically correct, but it's historically accurate. And if we're not careful in this sorry culture in which we live, there will be a day somewhere down the road where people in the South will say, we never owned slaves. and deny what are historical truths. You cannot change the past. You can do something about the present. And it is morally bankrupt to me for people to say, oh no, we never did that, and to rewrite history. Because if you do that, I'm going to tell you, it's already happening. The Holocaust really didn't happen. Hitler wasn't really a bad guy. On and on and on, down it'll go. And if the Lord tarries, we will have people who hold no accountability for any of their actions except before God, and one day they will. And so Paul says, look at it, your blood be on your own heads. I'm not responsible and this truth is hammered home by the early church and I want to walk you through very quickly just turn to Acts chapter 2 and you're going to have to listen quicker why is this truth written in scripture now remember all four gospels written by Jews the book of Acts written by Luke but he was a witness to what was going on now why did they keep saying this over and over and over that this Jesus whom you crucified? Not to try to put blame, 
but to give them an opportunity to repent. It is as if the church was saying to them, look, this is what you did, but you don't have to die this way. You can have freedom and forgiveness if you recognize that it is your sin and our sin that put Christ on the cross. So look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. We're going to walk through Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5. Very quickly, just marking and highlighting some notes. Acts 2, 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He said, well, Peter crucified him too, because yes, he did. But Peter is preaching the gospel. Peter has responded. He has believed on Christ, and he's talking to people that need to change. You've got to remember the context of all this. Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. Acts 3, 14. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Acts 3, 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, here's the key. They acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. He's offering forgiveness. Verse 26, for you first, for the Jews first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Acts 4.10. Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 5.30. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Did you notice they didn't say Pilate? You put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Why? Because they were the ones who rejected him as their Messiah. Pilate wasn't looking for a Messiah. The Jews were. And they rejected him as their Messiah. Look at verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Now the thing I love about Paul and Peter and the thing I love about the Gospels, but what I love about Paul here as this Gospel story has shifted from Simon Peter to Paul in the latter chapters of Acts is that Paul did not water down the message to get a response. He had integrity in his preaching. He didn't say, well, nobody came on the first verse. Maybe if I just tell them you only have to obey six of the commandments, maybe they'll come. Maybe if I tell them, you, you know, you, you can do this and not, you don't have to worry about your moral life, your ethical life. Maybe, maybe if I just keep watering it down until they come. We, we were talking about a, a, a church down in Florida and, and they're growing by leaps and bounds. Everybody said, oh, God's blessing that church. But you know what they're doing? They're watering it down. They're letting immorality in the church. They're letting homosexuality come into the church. They're not confronting sin. You can grow a church big if you don't speak the truth and confront people with sin. You know, you can grow if you just let people live together, do whatever they want to do. Just, you know, hey, you don't bother us, we won't bother you. Just put money in the plate, show up, we'll all be happy. 
Paul did not do that, nor did he resort to emotional manipulation. He didn't try to manipulate them. He says, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. Now, there's humor here, and you don't see it in the English. But he goes, the, he goes to the house of Titus Justice. If you read that in the original language, the synagogue, he shakes the garment off, and he walks out and says, that's it, I'm through, I'm going to the Gentiles. The wall of the house of justice joined the house of the synagogue. He just walked next door. He just went right next door. And guess who the first person that responded to the gospel was? The ruler of the synagogue. He walked out of the synagogue, shook it off, said, I'm through with you, I've had it, I'm not responsible, goes over to the Gentiles, which adjoins the synagogue, and the first person that responds is a Jew. I find that interesting and a little humorous. I'll just go next door. And so Paul's decision to move is vindicated, verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Folks, listen. There are going to be people who always reject the message. For a church like this, with members in 29 communities that surround this community, we're going to have people that don't like us. That's a fact. Don't think that everybody drives by this church and goes, Wow, what a great church. I'm so glad they're here. There are people that would wish we weren't here. Some of them are in other churches. Some of them are pagans. Don't think that there won't be opposition to the message. Don't think that everybody's going to applaud what we're trying to do with the passion. Don't think that everybody's excited about you being excited about the Lord. They're not. Because the cross is an offense. And when we go to the marketplace, we're going to be involved in spiritual warfare. Jack Taylor used to say years ago, if the devil's not bothering you, it's because he, you're not bothering him. And if we're out in the marketplace doing what we're supposed to be doing, sharing the gospel in this community the way we're supposed to, we will be hated by many. We may not win popularity contests, but we may get the applause of God, and I'd rather have that anyway. Amen. Number three, to claim a city for Christ, we have to overcome fear and discouragement. I, I just want to give you a little statement. This is not really profound, but it's worth writing down. Before you ever wake up anybody, you have to disturb them. You ever thought about that? Before you ever wake up anybody, you have to disturb them. That's what Paul did. Paul had to wake them up, but to wake them up, he had to... I can remember when our youngest daughter, she can sleep through an alarm clock like nobody's business, man. I mean, she can, she can do it. I mean, she can have it going full blast. It could just be going forever, and she's out like a light. And I can remember trying to wake her up. You know how you have to wake her up? You have to agitate her, which... I just got to say, at times was really fun. <laughs> Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, Paul's tired. I mean, he feels like he's rolling a rock uphill. He, he doesn't have momentum. He, he's out there making tents, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's getting opposition, and he's frustrated, and he's tired. You have to have time to retool, and you have to have time to regroup. You just can't go all the time. 
And the higher the high, the lower the low. I mean, that's just the adrenal glands. That's just the way our lives work. And Paul is tired, and he probably got a little discouraged. Opposition was beginning to wear on him. I mean, opposition wears on anybody. But it was beginning to wear on him. He'd been under all this pressure. The Jews and the Judaizers were following him from city to city, trying to stop his ministry. And so God appears to him in a vision. And God says, Paul, don't worry about it. I'm in control. I'm in charge here. You don't have to worry about what's going on. The devil's trying to stop it, but he's not going to stop it. The powers of darkness are being shaken. The enemy is being disturbed. And you just need to know, I'm in charge. And when you get discouraged, you need to know God's in charge. And you need to know the words of that song that Tiffany sang tonight. He is able. God's able. Whatever mountain is in your way, God is able to help you deal with it. And so we find courage to claim a city by five things, and they're in your notes. Number one, he put fear to flight. He put fear to flight. It says, do not be afraid any longer. Secondly, he remembered the abiding presence of God. You see, you've got to quit listening to your fears and start talking faith. And then you have to remember the abiding presence of God. I am with you. He obeyed the command of God. If you want to take a city and if you want to have courage to do that, then you've got to remember what God says. Keep on speaking. Don't let somebody's rejection of you and what you said stop you. You keep on speaking. Then he trusted God's protection. No man will, no man will attack you. He, what he's saying is the enemy's not going to win. And what this is a promise for Paul in Corinth. It was obviously not a promise for everywhere or for the rest of his life because he was attacked. But God gave him a promise for Corinth that he could stand on that this was going to be one place where the enemy wasn't going to be able to run him out of town. Next, he stood on the sovereignty of God. I have many people in this city. This reminds me of Elijah when he was sitting under the juniper tree and having a pity party. Woe is me, I'm the only one, Lord. If I die, you won't have any more witnesses. And God says, i got more people hidden in caves than you can count. God says, I have many people in this city. Jesus said, I know my sheep. Now let me try to focus this right here. If conversion of a city depends on my ability, I've already failed. If people getting saved depends on my ability to persuade them, then I'm a failure. But the conversion of a city did not depend on Paul. It depended on the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. It was this that drove William Carey to the mission field. It was this that drove Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon to the pulpits. It was this that drove George Whitfield to the open fields. This is what drives us, that God has many people and he wants us to reach them. Evangelism is our calling, but it is God's responsibility to save the lost. When I share my faith and when I speak of Jesus, I know two things. First of all, I know God is with me. I know that God has gone ahead of me, that God is with me, and that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to come behind me. I may be planting the seed, I may be watering, but it is God 
who brings the harvest. I know God's with me. You never talk to anybody that God is not there with you, that he has gone ahead. You never talk to anybody that he's not with you in the moment, and you never talk to anybody that that seed, God doesn't send a spirit to try to influence the life of that person. I know God's with me, and secondly, I know God has many people in this city that have not yet come to saving faith. That's why we still visit. That's why we have prayer blitz. That's why we do the things that we do. Because I believe there are people in this city that are tired of their meaningless existence, tired of going through the motions. They've hit the wall or they're about to hit the wall. And they're wondering if there's any hope. They're wondering if there are any answers. And some of them have gone to churches and been rejected because of the way they look or the color of their skin. Some have gone to places and been rejected because they weren't in the right socioeconomic level. But let them always be able to come here and always be welcomed to hear good news and to hear the call of God on their life. I have many in this city. Now listen, folks. Election and evangelism are not exclusive. They are complementary. There are two pages of quotes there. I'm not going to take time to do it because you'll be here all night. But there are two pages of quotes you can read later. Don't read them right now, but you should read them later. But my favorite one on that list is Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon said, basically, I don't remember the quote exactly, but Spurgeon said, you know, if God had just marked everybody with a yellow mark, yellow streak down their back, who are the elect, then all I'd have to do is go around lifting up shirts and find out who the elect are. But since he hasn't, I'm going to share with everybody and let God figure it out. Whosoever will may come, chosen before the foundation of the earth. You see, election's a family secret. You don't walk up to a lost person and say, do you think you're one of the elect? You share with people, and as God prompts their heart, there are many in this city. And I want to ask you to claim with me that verse. For I have many in this city. And let God send us to the many, many, so that we can find the many who are in this city that need Christ. Because God has a work for us to do. God has a mission field for us. He has a ministry for us to accomplish. And we're going to do it in all kinds of different ways. Serving the Lord, talking about the Lord, sharing about the Lord, leaving a track about the passion. I love this quote by Ray Steadman. There is nothing more encouraging to me in going into a strange place than the realization that God has brought me into that place because there are people there whom he already knows about and who will respond to what I have to say. One of the most liberating things for me was when I realized that I was not responsible for the response at the invitation. I'm just responsible to speak the truth. It is the Lord who brings the harvest. And you know, I could preach on tithing, and if somebody, God's after them, they'll get saved. 
And I don't even have to share John 3.16. But the Spirit of God will quicken their hearts and they'll realize their lost condition because the gospel is not dependent on what I say. It's dependent on the Holy Spirit using what I say and using the witness and the influence of other people so that in planting seeds, someday there's a harvest. You know why this city is dark? Because many churches are dark tonight. We've given up because people quit coming. I'm glad that's not true of us. Because a dark city needs a church with a light on to say whosoever will can come. You know why this city has so much drugs and alcoholism and immorality? Because somewhere along the line, the churches in our community forgot that we're not here to have social clubs and sewing circles and good old boy meetings. We're here to exalt Jesus. We're here to lift up his name. And if we become self-absorbed, God will take his hand off of us because he's not interested in people that always have to look at themselves in the mirror when they walk by. He wants us to quit looking in the mirror and when we leave here, look out the windshield and see fields that are white under harvest. And I don't know who the next person will be that is one of those many in this city, but I know they're out there. One of them may watch this television broadcast. One of them may hear this message in the Philippines. One of them may hear this message in Tallahassee, in Bossier City, in Chicago. I don't know where they'll hear it. But through our ministry, there are many that need to be reached. And you never know when somebody's going to turn on a TV or turn on a radio or walk into a church and God drew them to the gospel. I am so glad, folks, it doesn't depend on me. But I have to share like it depends all on me. And then I trust the results to the Lord. My job's not to win people to Jesus. My job's to share Jesus. It's God's job to win people to Jesus. My job is to just share. And so I would say to you tonight, if you happen to be here and you don't know Christ, you may be one of the many. God's Spirit may have spoken to you. You may have realized that you're lost and without Christ. Maybe in that moment when I talked about the fact that Paul shook that garment off, you thought, oh, I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. I would hate if somebody, I would hate if I got to that point that I rejected and I was so hard to the gospel that somebody would do that to me. And that's God's Holy Spirit saying to you, you still got time. You can still come. So I ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. Mark's going to come and sing. Our staff's going to be here.